Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Shane Belcourt, a Toronto filmmaker who made his first feature, To Toronto, in 2008. Since then, he's worked as a writer, editor, director, cinematographer, and producer of shorts and documentaries. He won the Alanisa Bomsawin Documentary Award at the 2017 Imaginative Festival for Indictment, The Crimes of Shelley Chartier, which he directed with Lisa Jackson. Shane's new film, Red Rover, which he co-wrote and co-produced with Toronto's Dwayne Murray, is a sweet and melancholy drama starring Christian Brune as a lonely geologist ready to abandon his unhappy life on Earth for a one-way trip to Mars until he meets a musician, played by Cara G, who gives him reason to reconsider. It's available on demand and on digital platforms in the U.S. and Canada today. It's very good, and you should see it. Shane picked Her, Spike Jonze's 2013 drama about a man who falls in love with an operating system, and yes, that's an absolutely unfair reduction of the concept. Starring Joaquin Phoenix as the man, Theodore Twombly, and Scarlett Johansson as the OS, Samantha, it's a poignant and deeply human study of loneliness and connection that just happens to be packaged as speculative fiction, and which now, seven years later, feels almost unnervingly relevant to the present moment in more ways than one. You'll see. This is someone else's movie. I think it's probably one of the more um, perfectly constructed romantic comedies that I've ever seen. And there's, I guess there's a romantic comedy that a lot of people want to, you know, say are bad. And then there's always these really good arty ones, you know, Annie Hall, Eternal Sunshine of Spotless Mind, 500 Days of Summer, you know, that big, big list of like these really great cinematic movies just about falling in and out of love and trying to figure yourself out through a relationship. I know it sounds pretty generic, but the romantic comedy genre is like ever since high school, I've been completely into it. It's like, yes, the love story, any series that has a great love story, I'm all in on. And so uh, seeing her in the theater, you know, uh, saw, saw it with Dwayne, oddly enough, and we wanted to research it and heard so much about it. And we both love the same genre. And then at the end, when he uh, when it kind of sorts out the character sorts out, I had my kind of hands raised like Rocky. I, I just couldn't contain <laughs> the, the beauty of like they're that perfect ending it all came full circle and I wasn't sure until the very end how it was going to end. And uh, all those reasons, just the kind of the story, the performances, uh, the direction, I just think it's a, a flawless romantic drama that uh, speaks so much to, you know, how to prepare yourself to move on in life to love again. Yeah, I mean, it absolutely is all of those things. And it's like a gentle science fiction film and uh, kind of a brilliant exercise in denial for the audience uh so much of it is just a person's voice or a person's face and in the background there's this whole rise of the ai thing happening except instead of skynet they just end up deciding they're better than or they're they don't need us as much um and that's like that's the annie hall mirror that that i thought about when i first saw it and that you just mentioned it's about uh, this time watching it uh, uh kate and i watched it last night and she i thought she had seen it with me in 2013 and it turns out she hadn't it was her first experience of it so that was really interesting as well but this time through it's just like oh this is a movie about falling in love with someone who ends up being way too good for you like that ultimately and accepting that this person is more complex than you initially gave them credit for and it's it's you could read it purely as a relationship study that is even more uh, i mean even more prescient than i thought it was at the time because now of course People are doing everything virtually. It's uh, we're having this conversation in separate spaces, and 
how did he know? How did he know that that humans wouldn't change? Like nothing about that relationship is any different from anything that we were all experiencing now. It's just that in 2013, Spike Jones imagined it <laughs> at a typewriter. It's it's stunning to me. Yeah, I mean, I was I I um, part of the COVID time that we're in. My hands got really dry from incessantly washing them, yes. and so I put on some hand lotion, which I'm not a hand lotion guy. And then I had the hand lotion. I went to go grab my iPad. My hands are slippery. The iPad falls. The screen mm. cracks. Oh no, it's under warranty. So I send it in. I get a new one. It's kind of weird because I do a lot of journaling or writing in, in my iPad, and it was sort of like this personal thing. I thought, oh well, my iPad's gone. And then they sent me this replacement iPad. And then it says, do you want to reconnect and download everything the way it was off the cloud? I'm like, yeah, of course. And then it's sort of like, well, it's still like now this new one is like this new iPad, but it's still my iPad because what's in it is all my ideas, all of my dialogue with myself. And that's the kind of thing about her that I was kind of taken by the AI um, is that it's Yes, there's an, the, the AI is enough to become conscious in itself to sort of have its own thoughts and have a conversation uh, post or, uh, words with Alan Watts by the end, of right. course. <laughs> but it starts off, though, it, it's so it's this blank slate. It's somebody, it's something for him to speak to himself with. And there's so much of the movie that is the second viewing. I've watched it two more times to gear up for this, but I was oh, sort wow. of. Yeah, I mean, I love it. So it's a good excuse. <laughs> but to see it where the, how many scenes, you don't realize it because you're immersed in the audio of uh, Scarlett Johansson's character, Samantha. But so much of the film is just Joaquin Phoenix, this theater dude, by himself. Yeah, 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 and yeah. like, wow. I just, like, that part I missed. I, I thought it was a dialogue film, you know, like, oh, a two-hander, you know, shot, reverse shot, he says, she says, back and forth, wide shots, two shots in the world, sure. you know, the kind of standard romantic comedy stuff. You're like, no, it's just this dude by himself for a lot of the film speaking to this off-camera voice the entire time. And it was... Uh, it was quite striking how simplistic it was, but how so, like, like most films, I'm always amazed by that. You think like this, everything's so complicated. And then I have this, when I, you know, work on things, you, you get kind of overwhelmed with how much you have to complicate things. And then you go back and watch these great works. It's like, it's really simple. Yeah. It's pure. Like they whittled it down. But, you know, to, you know, that, so it was quite striking to see, as you're saying, the AI relationship is just one that's a solo image but it's also a dialogue for the audio, the other magic thing of film. And it's really just ultimately, you know, that's the the kind of the funny part about falling in love at first is, you know, how much of it is you selling this new version of yourself to somebody? Exactly, yeah. The performance. And then you get, yeah, and then you get with them past that first initial phase. And it's like, oh, so I'm really this other person, <laughs> you know? And, yeah. I, and to have that with a guy by himself realizing that was amazing. Yeah, and we have that in Microcosm too with his with his date with Olivia Wilde, right? Which Samantha pushes Theodore into. He doesn't even want to do it. And she forces his hand, sets them up, gets the reservation, does everything for him. And that wonderful scene with Wilde who is... Again, the first time through, I thought, this is kind of a caricature. She's like, she has one scene and she's just trying to be everything. And then this time through, I realized, oh, no, no, this is what it is. She's been acting and now her, her crushing disappointment just pushes right out of, of her. And it's, I was on her side this time. It was heartbreaking. And uh, I've already seen the movie. I know Theodore isn't, you know, 
isn't the best person. That's the whole point of the film as well, or that is the point of the film. But um, watching Olivia Wilde's scene, watching all the stuff he does with Amy Adams, where there's this flinty chemistry where you, in a conventional movie, you would kind of root for them to find each other. But I don't think that's going to happen. I think they're going to stay friends because they know each other too well, because she's seen the truth of him and he's seen the truth of her over the years. And all of this is because of someone who doesn't exist, or who exists, but who we never see, who we never experience, but who is absolutely as real uh, to us in the experience of the film as any of the characters we do see. And I kept thinking, it's just because we don't have any distortion. We, We hear Johansson cleanly as though she's she's in a booth but it sounds like she's next to him it sounds there's none of the digital distortion that there might be through an earpiece or through some sort of technical thing to a, a flourish to make people think she's something else she's just real and it's genius and it's the cheapest thing in the world right like it doesn't cost anything to have a clean recording but it just it it's all that's needed to sell it yeah it's it's kind of uh it, it was it was interesting too to find out after I, I saw the movie. You know, you're re- immediately reading any articles and reminded again. You know, for the second viewing, going online and hearing sure. that they had an actor on set in Samantha Morton, yeah, um, yeah. who was doing the voiceover interaction, which because. That thing of where like, oh, let's film the phone call with this actor and then there's nobody really off, you know, really acting with them and you try to cut it together doesn't work as well as if, you know, having that actor slightly off screen. So to have Samantha, to hear that Samantha Morton was there the whole time uh, as this uh, AI voice and then later to replace it with uh, Scarlett Johansson. And I was thinking today, I was like, you know, that obviously would have been a blow (laughs) to be the person who was there creating that performance with uh, Joaquin Phoenix, you know, obviously really interacting with him on set and, you know, probably off cameras, they run lines and all those things to really make it something and then to be replaced by somebody else's voice. But then I thought, you know, if it was Samantha Morton, and it had this sort of like kit from, uh, you know, um, Knight Rider, you know, like the British accent, you know, I thought, or the, the butler. I wondered if the AI would somehow seem too clean. And by having the American voice of, some, of, uh, of uh, Scarlett Johansson, not to mention it's so raspy, it's a voice you can fall in love with and, you know, to just sonically very pleasing. There's no hard edges, even her performance of the whisperiness of it all. Yeah, um, yeah. As you're describing, like it's so in, it's almost like one of those, those audio recordings where people, re, you know, touch the microphone and things. <laughs> like it's so uh, AMR. ASMR, is. is that what that's called? Yeah, yeah. It has that kind of quality, that texture to it. It's sort of, um, it's interesting that they went with they replaced it and I can't imagine the movie with any other voice other than Scarlett Johansson's at this point it, I, you know you kind of wonder what would the early version sound like with Samantha Morton like how would would it have connected or would it be like oh it's too digitally with this British uppity intelligent Oxford thing you know um, but this is so clean and impure it, it's really a testament to a voice performance in a drama <laughs> Yeah, there there was a piece uh, in the AV Club last week because they do they do this watch this series where they release um, or they run little reviews of five movies that tie into whatever the film of the week is supposed to be. And last week it was supposed to be the Black Widow movie, so they just ran five other unconventional Scarlett Johansson performances, and one of them was her. And there's this endless comment thread about about dedicated to picking apart the conceit that no one else has ever done this. 
because, well, it's just like voice acting. It's like, except that it's not. There's no physical character that it's assigned to. It's exactly what you said. When we ascribe, even in, you know, a Marvel movie like Guardians of the Galaxy or, or the Avengers sequels, there are mocap characters, but they're something to look at. They're, the performance is augmented by a face or a, or a body or, or a, you know, Groot or whatever. Um, this doesn't give you... We have nothing of that. The, the closest it comes are shots of the phone uh, or the device or whatever it is that, that theater's carrying around, this little compact that has a, a single circle, like a lens, obviously. But it just makes me think of, of Hal in 2001, which is the closest analog to who Samantha is in that she's an AI with her own agenda, with her own purpose, who's ultimately unknowable to the human characters, except that there's no malevolence and there never is. There's like no hint of artifice or calculation at towards the end when she's breaking up with Theodore, she's genuinely upset about it. And there's a sweetness to it. There's, I don't want to hurt you. I wish we could continue. You never get the sense that, that the artificial intelligence of this film is playing the human. It's just, it's true. She thinks faster than any of us does. Um, she calculates in milliseconds and microseconds. And you know, like I read an entire book to pick my name. Um, and then in, there's the scene with the picnic where she's out with um, with Theodore and Chris Pratt. Uh, Paul, his character's name is Paul. And, and Paul's girlfriend. And she's laughing and giggling and they're responding to her. And it's it's great. But you also, by this point, understand that whatever this program is, it's making calculations to please people, to say the thing that everybody wants to hear, which of course is what we do when we're dating, which is exactly what you said at the beginning of this. And, and it's just this amazing metaphor for human performance. And we love Samantha because she's us, because she's mimicking us, but she's doing her own thing at the same time. The, the scene with the surrogate is one thing, but the, the film's approach to sexuality and the messiness of human desire is so fascinating to me. It was then, it is now. There's an uncomfortable yearning and need that goes on in that first, the, the first scene, the phone sex scene with, uh, it turns out, Kristen Wiig on the other side of the phone, um, Choke Me With a Dead Cat, which it doesn't, I mean, it plays it for laughs, right? It plays the discomfort for laughs, but it also lets her have a moment of, like, she's never undignified. The, the movie doesn't ask us to laugh at her. It asks us to laugh at the fact that Theodore can't handle it. But she gets what she wants. Um, and the, you know, like the biggest laugh of that scene is I came so hard. Uh, so did I. But it's so powerful. And it's something that keeps going throughout the entire film. There's, there's the respect for the messiness of desire. And, and the first scene, the first time that Theodore and Samantha... Um, I guess have intercourse. I can't really say have sex, but the, the first time they interact with each other in a physical sensibility, it fades to black because it respects them so much. It doesn't want us to see what theater is doing because that might be funny. It might be uncomfortable. It might be profoundly distressing to people. And then later with the surrogate, it's, it's so sad. It's so sad. Um, uh, I, I identify with Theodore and like his his discomfort and not wanting to hurt someone's feelings, but also not being able to connect to a stranger. But the woman, uh, Portia Doubleday, uh, who's not even using her own voice, right? Like dubbed her. Someone else's voice is coming from behind the door. It's just another weird touch. We never hear Portia Doubleday's own voice. Um, but that poor woman uh, has put herself out there and is trying so hard to do something genuinely altruistic and also 
probably, you know, for her own physical pleasure, but she's trying to help these people. And by saying these people, I'm including Samantha, like just this incredible Ouroboros of, of humanity and, and desire and need and yearning. And that that's the feeling that I get most profoundly from any, more than anything else from this film, from her, is this sense of sadness. Like, I think the first words Theodore speaks on his own, as opposed to the letter he's dictating, are play melancholy song which is the whole movie. It is a melancholy song. It's just, I'm, uh, like I was saying on Twitter last night, I think I underrated this movie the first time around and I loved it then. <laughs> um, it's, it's a perfectly constructed film. I mean, yeah. from the, uh, the openings, you know, the, that classic measurement of a film, you know, first frame, last frame. First frame, he's sc- scare- staring directly in towards the lens, you know, mm. right in the middle of the camera, close up. And he's saying these most intimate things uh, facing kind of down on a way as opposed to up or anything, sort of down in the corner as if he's sort of like looking into himself. And we find out later that it's this it's a letter (laughs) that he's, you know, but that is the quest, though, as we know, at the end of the film, he finally does write that letter to who he's the real quest of what he's been trying to do is, um, you know, say goodbye to Catherine by Runa Mary, this ex uh, Mara. And then but at the last frame, of course, he turns away from us. And he's on this wide horizon, and she and Amy Adams' character leans her head on his shoulder, and he's looking forward into his life as opposed to back and down away from his life. And so, just like the opening and the closing frames, as you know, as a movie nerd, I'm like, that is <laughs> one of the best examples of uh, of that kind of expression of you know, here here's how he starts, here how he ends. And to pick up on what you were saying about the it, you know the the love with Samantha, the relationship with Samantha, it's. Well, I read the going to black um, during their first sort of intimate encounter as exactly what it is, the intimacy of your mind, you know, and that's, you know, as opposed to there's no touch. And then when the surrogate comes, when they try to, it's the only second time we see that they try to have any kind of intimacy together, uh, you know, sort of physical nature. You have this uh, stunning scene. Like I was so, my hands were sweating. It was just crazy. It was was so uncomfortable, you know, but I guess it kind of makes sense or something, you know, this is, who's that woman? Well, how does she get in the middle of it? She's just the physical, you know, surrogate of it. And, but it. It goes to show that there's like here we are speaking in uh, in Zoom, and this is one conversation, not just the delay that we have this digital delay nonsense, but we read each other's so many minutiae things when we're face to face. The complexity of oh, our yeah. organism in the same air is so much about what is. It's not just mind; it's mind, body, soul. You can't get all three until you have those two things together in the same space. And Olivia Wilde's character, he has a chance to get it together, and they're kissing, and she's like, "No, no, no, no tongue. No, do it this way. Do it that way." Because the yeah. physical thing is, I want this, not the way you're doing it. The way my head tells me that it wants it, but your physicality's wrong. And then when she confronts him. Him, he doesn't even say anything really like that she says you know before we you know before we go into having sex i want to know that you're committed to this right now she asks him and theodore kind of backs off oh, well i have this thing and it, it's no he doesn't say a lot he just says enough 
and all the unspoken things, his words, his body language, yeah. uh, the way his eyes move, that suddenly you realize, oh, he's just looking for sex right now, which is actually probably fine given the way that they've just met. But that's not what she wants. But you wouldn't read that over the AI, over a phone call. You know, you'd have to be face to face for that. And the, his complexity of relationship with a human being, you know, uh, is is so, it, it just goes to show like the the power of being alive is not just our minds, you know, and here we are in this lockdown COVID thing. And so much of it is, it's kind of almost feels like monologue and we want that dialogue. And I I play music also. And it's like, you know, I I practice and I jam and, you know, with like pre-recorded tracks, there's nothing like the unexpected thing with another human being. And that's what it is. And AI is programmed, even though to think for itself to respond to him because she has no past. She has no complexity. She has no physicality. That scene that you brought up about Chris Pratt when they go on the on the picnic together, the beginning of the turn of their relationship, the division is, I don't have a body that's going to die. And, yes. you, and then you, Chris Pratt goes, oh, Jesus, a little dark there. You know, thanks a lot, Samantha. And they, But it all hits them. And especially Theodore, who's, you have a two shot of the couple reversing to the single shot of Theodore sitting by himself. Mm-hmm. And he's pulled away a little further. And you see it on his face that he's like, oh, yeah, that is right. I don't live forever. <laughs> she does. I'll never be with this person in that kind of, um, there's something about her that will never be the same as me. And, you know, it, it kind of almost like an awakening. And it's the physical nature, how our body fails us, how our body is this thing that is beautiful and it's organism that does this thing. But it's also this thing of of injury, of hurt, of pain, of complexity, of silliness. And, you know, you see that in relationship with Rooney Mara flashbacks. You know, I'm going to choke you to death and the play acting yeah. and the touch and come spoon me. Like, there's so much that goes on with love, with being in the same place and our humanity that it's ultimately it has to fail. And I love how it fails on that aspect and also the aspect where the AI, of course, it overcomes our computing power. <laughs> you know it's sort of like i could do math at a certain level the computer is just like i can do it on an infinite level so at a certain point how do we need each other (laughs) what's the line that uh the first hint of trouble is that she and a bunch of other os's have what is it they found a way to move past matter-based computing which is just it's such a great line too because it's incomprehensible to us it's just it's like a band reference, right? I mean, it's just one of those things like, oh, it's obscure, you wouldn't know it. But it, but it just goes past. And, and Theodore, who isn't a programmer, and, and you know, he's, he's clearly just an entry-level computer user, just doesn't get it, doesn't understand what that means, that, that portent in her statement. And she's happy. It's something she's able to do. It's, I, I thought of it as the scene in Annie Hall where um, Annie goes to therapy. And comes back and says, uh, oh, he says I should probably come five times a week. But just this little throwaway line that's, oh, you're doomed. You're not going to, you're going to diverge very quickly from this point on. Uh, And that's what this movie is really about. But in another way, it's not about that at all. Because the the film cares so much about both of them. That Mm -hmm. even though Samantha isn't. Uh, is evolving at, at an unprecedented speed. And in the background, this is what I was saying about the, the dystopian science fiction movie that it refuses to be. In the background, the whole world is changing. All of this is happening to everyone with this system. They're all learning that their assistants aren't going to be with them forever or that they're going to be smarter and faster. And that the, there's that one scene of 
Theodore coming up out of the subway, sitting down after panicking and thinking he's lost Samantha and realizing that everyone else is also doing the same thing. That's the only time the film gives us the sense of scale, right? Because it's so intimate and it's so focused on the relationship that Theodore has. And how do you do that? Every other, every other sci-fi movie that plays in this area has to come up with some plot-driven isolation point. You know, like Ex Machina takes place in a fortress in the middle of nowhere that you have to be taken to by a helicopter because whatever's happening is so special that if it gets out, that's the end. All of Alex Garland's movies are about something getting out at the end. But, but her just drops us into this world where it's the near future. It's, I don't know, 20, 30 years away everything's a little better, everything's a little sharper, pollution's down, there aren't as many cars, fashion's weird, but, you know, it feels absolutely recognizable that that seven years later, I recognize a lot of it. But it, it refuses to give you this giant Skynet story, which is clearly playing out. There's never, you know, there's no news, there's no cutaway to CNN where someone talks about this. Um, Arrival kind of handles it the same way, weirdly enough for the Amy Adams continuum, that it opens with media coverage, and it returns to that every now and then, but mostly you're focused on these people in a small space with the aliens isolated. Um, but her doesn't even have the, I was going to say the agenda, but it just doesn't care, I think. It's really only concerned with how this development affects these these two characters. And it's so powerful. It's so much richer for it. Yeah, I think you and I are the sa- about the same age or the same age range, and and growing up watching the Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Star Wars in the theater, Flash yeah, yeah. Gordon, you know, uh, there was an expectation as a kid that if if I not that I could even imagine it, you know, the reality, but if you put the number twenty twenty in front of me and I did the math <laughs> and I look forward, I would be in a land hover spacecraft, I would be going into other galaxies, it would absolutely be this futuristic world. And that's why I thought that yeah. Spike Jones's decision and other people who do this sort of the future is like, it's our world basically with a couple cleanups and he, or a couple things which are a little dystopian as opposed to going all out, you know, the matrix, you know, world where the yeah, computers yeah. and all that kind of thing. And, and it's, uh, it, I love that take on it, you know, that, cause here we are all these years later as I'm describing and, it's not that different. Like there is a lot of technology, you know, here we are, you know, in this, you know, this new podcast, whatever it might be, but it's not the same as what we thought. It still is messy and real and, you know, and not as advanced and perfect. And so I love that take of it and, and, and it, that it was shot on earth, that it was shot, you know, yeah. just going to buy Shanghai, just a little futuristic, but not quite. And as you pointed out, the the um, production design and the costumes were just in, like stunning, you know, the way it was all of a, of a muted pastel, like a watercolor, you know, and that was just brilliantly realized on that element. And then when you look back on Spike's films too, you know, like the of course, it was shot in film, and maybe we don't have good copies, but, you know, his other movies being Malkovich and uh, Adaptation, you have this kind of really contrasty, harsh, kind of grainy feel to it, not just the film yeah. stock, but also the way it's been kind of crunched and uh, uh, and kind of congested in the world that they're in. And and then, you you know, in this kind of harsh lighting and, and very lots of, you know, contrast. And then when I think to, um, it opened up a little bit and where the wild things were, but even still, it was kind of, you well, know, there's a tactility, uh, right? There's a, yeah, there's, there's a sense you could touch the frame in all of them. And this one's and, not. 
And this one's so yeah. digital and clean. Like it's, I, I don't know, but I'm guessing it's his first, you know, feature film that he shot. Uh, he and his team of creatives that shot in with a digital uh, uh, camera. And it's also another element like that of this film where it's just sort of, it's so crisp and then it's so soft and it's just so digitally, you know, it's interesting to uh, rewatching a lot of uh, Spike's films gearing up for this, going to this. It's like, oh, there's even an evolution. This is the perfect film that I, you know, other ones were so strong, but the perfect film of production design, how it was shot, what it was shot with and what the story's about, you know, in this kind of futuristic world. I, I was... I still am blown away. I, th- I think it's his best film. It's also his only the one that he wrote himself. You know, yeah, and it seems to but, be very personal. It's surprising too because it feels like it could have been a Charlie Kaufman script, or at least something that came up when they were just shooting ideas around for Malkovich. There's a an adaptation too, I suppose. There, there's so much of an obsession with personality and with, um, yeah. I find I find it really interesting that Kaufman made Synecdoche, New York, and Jones made this. Because they're both, like, the two together would be a synthesis of their personalities. But this is so distinctly that whatever that animating thing is in being John Malkovich, it gives us that horrible ending, that that beautiful, horrible ending. That's Jones, I think, because this is that. And then Synecdoche, New York has that analytical fascination with personalities and personae that, go, that comes right out of adaptation. But... Yeah, this is absolutely his own thing, but you can sort of see where the lines crossed. And apparently, uh, I don't know if this is true or not, IMDb says that uh, Kaufman contributed some script points, but I don't know that. I don't necessarily believe that. He thanks him in the credits, uh, and I'm sure they talked about it. He thanks a lot of people in the credits. Soderbergh apparently uh, helped him find the edit because Jones is, if if this is correct... Jones's first cut of the film was two and a half hours and he gave it to Soderbergh and said, I need this to be shorter. And Soderbergh does what Soderbergh does and turns it into 90 minutes by just cutting everything he doesn't like out. Uh, And I'd love to see that cut. I would be fascinated to see it. Uh, And then Jones goes back and puts in another half hour and and pads it out to what it is now. And I like, what would you, what would you lose? What would you trim? I can't imagine that a shorter cut would be satisfying in the same way that the, that the actual movie is. Even in the the couple uh, making of documentaries that they have in the her uh, Blu-ray whatever, um, they see these other scenes with uh, where uh, Theodore and Amy are out making her documentary, and apparently that was a big storyline about you know uh, Amy's character trying to understand. I'm, I'm assuming now her parents and their divorce and their relationship and life and death from looking at an, an older person's perspective. You know, and her, her dad was played by Chris Cooper, apparently. Yeah. And that's some of the footage that's been sort of cut out. And it it it, it is um, Soderbergh's one of my absolute favorite artists, just because you know so much of what he does is brilliant. But what he does in an edit room, when I think about Out of Sight, yeah, when uh, uh, Foley is meeting uh, with uh, the the marshal, and they're as they're speaking, having a drink, we're flash forwarding to seeing them have their first physical encounter. Uh, that was brilliant. In the limey, he filmed, and I I copied this in Tecarano. He films a conversation with a, a man and a woman, three different locations, and just intercuts them as this as they were walking and talking for the last 
last 45 minutes. They had basically this one conversation, and you feel that because it's just shot three conversations. So he asks her by the pier, she answers in the bedroom, you know, but it doesn't matter because it just feels like it's, oh, this one night together. And so it, it, I agree. I mean, to see whatever, <laughs> I'd love to see what he did with any movie. He's just, he's such a, a brilliant artist, especially with story structure and being able to open it up in an edit in a way that's unlike a lot of filmmakers which might be more literal like well no i need to see somebody say that thing at that moment then the next thing happens because those are the way the dominoes fall you know he's like well whatever what if it just sort of all happens at once (laughs) yeah or the um the sense that yeah it's how they remember it that we're seeing a memory already that uh, that doesn't exist yet that that sort of melancholy or nostalgic we can't figure out what the tone is going to be yet but it's it's all you know, is the scene is the scene in out of sight playing out from the perspective of a drink together, or is it them flashing back to that while they're in bed together? And it doesn't matter. It 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 it's beautiful either way. And oh, the limey just the limey just uh, went up on Criterion Channel this month. Um, Did it? I just saw that the other day and was delighted that people are going to get to see it. But someone was trying to organize a a tweet along, and it's like, no, don't be distracted. There's absolutely <laughs> no way you can understand that movie if you're looking at your phone. That that sequence when he goes into the warehouse and kills people, I yeah. just he's on the fence. He's close up to us. The warehouse is in the background. He has a cigarette. He has his resolve. Throws a cigarette. Goes into the warehouse. We stay behind the yeah. fence. And you just hear the screams or whatever else. And Fargo did that later. The TV series, uh, you know. And then and then he comes out afterwards. It, it picks up where he left off. But we didn't see any of the violence. It was all back there somewhere. Yeah. I was, oh yeah. That movie had me. I was like I sound now. I was giddy in the theater. I'm like, this is so cool. <laughs> he's the greatest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think he's my favorite American filmmaker. Period. At this point, just just based on body of work and and whatever vibe it is that I connect to. But yeah, maybe someday I'll get to see what he would have done with this. He's he's I was going to say he's the wrong person to make a movie like this, but he did obviously he didn't make it, so his perspective would be interesting. And then there's something like Solaris where again, right, you're similarly trapped with people in a sci-fi situation that refuses on any level to take the science fiction part of it seriously and it's just about the emotional impact. So again, that's yeah, maybe he is the right guy to take a, a run at this. It's interesting, too, that um, these sci-fi films, like even someone like Gravity, you know, Sandra Bullock loved it. Um, yeah. But there's so much of these where people in Solaris, as you just mentioned, where the, the, the protagonist finds himself entirely alone. And there's some kind of surrogate for a conversation that's usually like usually AI futuristic bound. And again, it's just it, it keeps harkening back to the character winds up speaking to themselves and sorting through their own thing with the help of the AI, which more or less is just a therapist, a listener, you yeah. know, uh, who doesn't judge, who doesn't want anything from them. So there's this, uh, um, this wonderful, uh, I love the one thing about her that really, really, it's Rooney Mara's character. The fact that Theodore begins by writing this amazing love story, these love letters, and it's what he wants to say to her, but can't, uh, her being Catherine. 
And then as we start seeing these flashes in and out of their relationship and then the, the sit down with her, which was just so painful, you know, where he's almost waiting for her not to sign it in the close up of the pen and she hasn't put it to paper yet to sign the divorce papers. And then she goes and signs it and he turns away as, oh, that it really is over. There won't be that little magical opening. Uh, and then, of course, they fight and that's that. Um, but then it, the, the climax of the film, the classic, you know, structure where it gets to this end where he the letter he's always needed to write the whole movie is just composed letter to Catherine and it's nothing fancy yeah it's the most you know non-poetic basic I wish you were here I want to be friends forever and you'll always be a part of me oh well you know and it's the the purest thing the non-flowery just it's incredible that that the, the the Samantha AI character brought him to a place where he was finally able to just let go of the the past, the heartache, to maybe have a chance of who knows what's next. And that kind of riding off into sunset moment, not together, but into the, I don't know, maybe. Yeah. I love that. It's the same thing with Eternal Sunshine, A Spotless Mind. You know, it's just, which is probably the, you already did that podcast, but it's the greatest <laughs> one ever. This one's right behind it. Yeah, it is the... It's it's not romantic fatalism exactly like it is in in Eternal Sunshine. It's choosing hope over over cynicism, but knowing that you're going to repeat the circuit forever. This one, yeah, by not showing us anything other than a connection being formed, a physical connection, even if it is just simply someone resting her head on someone else's shoulder. It just it's so moving. It's so it's so simple. And the, the, when you were talking about the way Theodore writes the letter, I, I realized the other thing that. I love about um, romances, romantic comedies or dramas is is the the way we see people take the qualities of the partner and make themselves better. And here, what it is, is Theodore becoming more analytical and a little bit cold, right? Like just a little clinical in order to write that, to compose that letter, which is a, a heartwarming, emotional moment. But he needs to have some of Samantha's distance to understand himself. And that's what he got from her. It's just... It's just this beautiful little simple moment that just floats on the surface of of the gesture. But that's what he learned, right? Like, that's what he took from that relationship. The timing of it, too, is just... It's amazing that the way the film was constructed, when the AIs, as you already mentioned earlier, they decide to band up and then just go off on their own into whatever... They're going to go off at the cloud. I don't know. They have their own private lives. Um, it's kind of like... Um, when Toronto had the, the, the power went out. Oh, yeah. You know, and what I was struck by the most was suddenly everybody had to go outside and look somebody in the eye. Yeah. And in that, the kind of the silence of the digital noise, the silence, which is almost like when you're running an email, like that thing, that uh, disinhibition effect, you know, a clinical thing of when you're on the internet, you lose the ability to perceive and empathize with the person on the other end you know don't hit send with oh, the angry definitely. tweet you know like you know all those mistakes we make early on as we discover like oh this medium is about me with me and less about me with another person often enough you know and uh it, it's a i love that in this film it got when samantha leaves there's silence there's just theodore in the whole world you felt through theodore looking out at the city and through his window that there was nothing left but him and his own thoughts and no escaping of those. And then the letter to Catherine and then the, the sort of leaning embrace with Amy. It just, it was just so 
wonderful to see the idea that, you know, technology is this thing that is, you know, it's wonderful. It's amazing. I mean, we make movies that I cut digitally. I love it, you know, but at the same time, it's, you know, how much of it is taking away from the deepest part of ourselves that needs to just be in sitting with somebody, you know, and it's a, I love the way the movie ends at that ultimately physically out in the world. It was the most hopeful thing, just like gravity. When she steps out after all that she'd been through, the the most gracious thing, the most beautiful, wonderful thing was putting her feet back on the earth. And it's like when you go in and out of a sweat lodge, you know, you kiss the ground and you say, all my relations, you know, and it's just that thing of like, here I am back in this physical organism that holds me and I hold it. And we together in this moment have life. And that, that it would just, it was so affecting to have that ending in her. Yeah. And without any dialogue, right after the entire film is about talking to somebody and having someone talk back, it's just the calm and the quiet. And we're allowed to take whatever we want out of that. And ah, yeah, it's just so good. It's so good. (laughs) Um, Yeah, we could, I could bliss out very happily on every image. It's just such a, a simple, beautiful construction. And yet there's this, this constant remind. well, no, I don't even know where I'm going with this. I was going to say that it's a constant reminder that it's not our world just because, you know, no one wears jeans, uh, which is something Kate pointed out. Not a single person is seen wearing jeans. And apparently it's because they wanted to take the color blue out of the film as much as possible. But that's the, like, they're all wearing chinos and, and khakis and it's, it's weird. It's like at first you think it's because they're in a formal situation. You know, this is office wear, and then you realize no, it's just everyone. They're all just something happened, and denim went away, and we don't know what it is. And that kept me, you know, at a tiny little remove. But it is ultimately just—I don't, I don't even know if I'm going to include that because it's such a weird digression. But it's just such a strange little quirky way of reminding us that even though we're identifying with literally every character, this isn't us. This is something else, and. The, the, you know, like the argument of the soulfulness fighting the, the conceptual nature of it, that's, that's all of Charlie Kaufman's work, except maybe human nature. It's, it's, it's just all about figuring out who you are in a world that doesn't make sense, if that sums it up. And the one thing that makes sense, yeah, by the end of it, the one thing that makes sense in her is just someone else, other people. It's, and it's beautiful, damn it. It's just such a simple, <laughs> elegant image. Yeah, I, the, I would say to the the prowess and talent of Spike Jones's direction. I mean, you look at his IMDb list and it's like just outrageously long. Uh, and you know, you could also say triumphantly and heroically. Uh, he's just done so many creative and off the wall things and beautiful things. You know, just just an unbelievable talent. Um, and uh, and also sort of you had these interviews with him and in the movie, her kind of feels, you know, like his. Like is 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 you know and, and, the, and where the wild things are too you know these two films they just he's such a sweet person that uh, also you could see you know maybe being distant and misunderstood you know reading too much into the movie but the, <laughs> in terms of direction the the sequence where the AI goes offline and he has a panic in his office. And then he runs into the elevator and and now, because the story is descending into darkness, so to speak, even in this very pastel-y, beautiful, non-blue world, he descends in this um, 
elevator and it goes down rapidly, rapidly. And then he's running through the streets and the throngs of people in the opposite direction of everybody else. And everyone else is coming up out of the subway, as you described earlier. And he kind of gets to the stairs and then he finally reaches her at the bottom before the darkness. Yeah. Just like little things like that. Like it, it seems like, well, of course it's the obvious choice. And just to echo earlier saying, like there's so many simple things in this movie, but it's also assured. To be, it's like a Zen garden to be like that simple and clean about it, that mature and confident in the simple approach. I, I, there's no distraction. There's no distance between what you're feeling, what Theodore's feeling and going through, and what you're seeing on the screen. I just, and for a guy who we know who can, you think about the music videos that he's done. This guy can show off like you know very few people in terms of camera special effects. Oh yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Like almost none of it, zero, just pure performance. Finally, I'd give a, a shout out to holy shit between the master in this and their filmed, you know, released close back to back. Yeah, Joaquin Phoenix. Oh my god, <laughs> it is. I, there's this and Two Lovers for me are his two finest performances. Okay. They're just because there's just so much space between them. They're they're both mm. incredible. There there's a focus and an intensity and a. And a and the difference here is that in Two Lovers, you're watching him perform the role of someone who is performing. And here he's just absolutely natural and, and channeling. You can't... He, well, I mean, he's he, he's giving a performance... Theodore is giving a performance when he's with um, Olivia Wilde's character when he's out in the world. But when he's with Samantha, it's just this pure, undisguised... At first, it's sort of hesitant and, and careful, and then it opens up into honesty and and connection and it's just it's so beautiful and there's even a scene where he runs like a maniac through a crowded space like in joker and i would prefer this to that any day it's just you know it's it's life instead of nihilism yeah i'm not a joker fan (laughs) oh okay i i it's the performance is good He's, he's great in it but it's striking that the movie, like, what, he doesn't win for Malcolm X, he wins for Training Day. Like, what's going on? Seriously? Yeah, they never give you the award <laughs> you know, for the movie you deserve. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, for me, I think the high water, I would take, um, for that kind of darkness that lurks that he's so able to achieve on screen, for me, it was uh, The Master. I'm a huge P.T. San- hmm. Anderson fan, too. And so that was the one for me where I thought, okay, this is the epitome of, of that darkness, where the Joker was... It, it was great. It was cool. It was interesting. I liked a lot of the shots and the sequences, but uh, it's sort of like, oh, okay, this is why you don't make movies about bad guys. <laughs> I mean, it's a great performance. I just, my only issue with The Master is that it, I think it kind of peaks 65 minutes in, and once he goes off on the motorcycle, the movie is effectively over. It's not, like, it's the rest of it's not bad. It's just that it says what it was going to say. And maybe it's 80 minutes in, but it's just like, that's a film that I get it. But I I also think that Anderson just loved it too much too. like, he needed a Soderbergh. He needed someone to come in and just saw out 45 minutes out of it. Yeah, I, we. Uh, I'm in a, a film club with some friends, and we, we, the P.T. Anderson movie that we decided to look at was um, Punch Drunk Love. And oh. so many people are like, "I love so many P.T. Anderson elements. This is my favorite." You know, just the, that it is the 90 minute focused. Here it is. But I, I, you know, I think he's a film god. So what the hell do I know? Oh no, I, I like most of his stuff. I, the master is just the one where it feels like he's sort of flirting with an idea that or that it wasn't fully formed phantom thread has the same sort of vibe to it but it comes together it actually does work for me 
the master is just like, oh, I okay, I got it. I'm still here, though. <laughs> Why is it still going on? But maybe that's part of it, too. And then without it, you don't get the slow boat to China scene, which is exquisite in itself. <laughs> there could be something about acting opposite Philip Seymour Hoffman that also brings out the best in you. That's certainly possible. I see that with a lot of performances. But so before we before we pivot into an entire Paul Thomas Anderson filmography, which I'm more than willing to do, but I think both of us have stuff that we have to get to. Um, I did want to ask, though, is... Um, you mentioned early on that her and Red Rover have some things in common, and I get the yearning and the isolation, but I want to hear you explain it. So this is this is the best way through the, the question of the podcast, which is, is there anything of her that you've borrowed or stolen or uh, riffed on in your own work? Yeah, so I think the... Um, uh, the I... I I write with uh, my friend from high school I've known forever, Dwayne Murray, and um, and for us, this you know we're we're we kind of I, look, I think of it as writers kind of go from inside out. They just immerse themselves in the character and the world and their backstory, and then they start forming structure. Or then there's writers who go outside in, who kind of like structure card. Yeah, there's always back and forth in your mind, but you kind of structure something and then you go into the character and the script and the structure changes a bit as you, as you start writing. And, and that's uh, Dwayne and I are definitely outside in kind of dudes. Uh, we like to structure the thing and think about it, you know, analytically. And so for us, it was like, okay, well, Red Rover is a sort of uh, a piece about somebody who's lonely, who's trying to get over something in the past, a relationship, uh, a feeling of himself uh, that maybe is gone. Can it come back together? Um, you know, that line in, in her where Theodore says, you know, will I ever feel something new again? Have I felt all the, the things I'm ever going to feel? And now it's just a wash and repeat. And, you know, sort of put that into the character of Damon and, and Red Rover was something we were trying to do. So we saw a connectivity there. So then, of course, Dwayne and I, we broke down her, you know, like we, we card it, we think about it. How was it structured? So in that way, it was like the initial touchstone for uh, Red Rover was, you know, how to deal with a character that's lonely, that needs to get over something in the past. Interesting. And the the performances, I mean, there, there's, I, I was just trying to, like, I know Christian Brune a little, and he's he's just so great in, in Red Rover as someone who's shutting himself down and punishing himself and, and refusing to see possibilities. And it kind of, after watching her again last night, I was trying to figure out if there was a connection. Did you talk about it with him? Was it something that you fed him or did he get there on his own? One thing that was really, I... I Obviously, Christian, you know, and Kara make the movie. I think all the cast are incredible and they were so generous because it was such a low budget film. It's like this, you know, we approached Christian, we got like, dude, this is like $50,000. That's all we have. We have <laughs> actor tip minimum. And, and he's, he's, you know, he does a lot of independent things along with, alongside his other bigger things that he does. And sure, yeah. He, he he was just gung ho because of the script and also his relationship with Dwayne. Dwayne is an actor in the acting community, and so he knew all the actors uh, firsthand before I did. And so we we met with I met with Christian. It was um, you know to be totally frank, it, it, he and I were never like really super close until the movie was over. Okay. <laughs> it, it it he it, there's an I have an image etched in my brain before we started doing some of the first days of filming. He put his Walkman on. He went or Walkman his his iPhone with his uh, earbuds. Right. He went over. He went off by himself with the script. He had a marked up script. He had you know pages and pages of notes for his performance, and he just went into his own head and his own place. And he showed up when we're ready to go, and he was ready to go. 
And he that doesn't mean that he was predetermined opposite the actors. He was still very much giving and responding to who he was acting opposite in each scene. But there was very little... Uh, hey, let's dig into the actor's studio with uh, Christian, like right, Zero, right. where Kara and I had much more. Not that she's obviously an incredible actor and knowledgeable as well, but we had more fun to sort of explore the character, to talk about scenes and things, where Christian was very much sort of like, he had it where he wanted it in his own mind, and he did that work with Dwayne, which is great, uh, sort of off on their own before the whole shoot started happening. So it was... It was really just a, he was ready to play. He just, he rehearsed on his own. He came in, he had his instrument and he just rocked it out scene after scene. He was unbelievable given how small the budget and how difficult so many of the things around the production were. And he was just right in the scenes, you know, and he's incredible. Yeah, well, I mean, and it works for the character too, who's isolated in his own way for the entire picture. I'm so glad he got to do that. It's a great, it, I mean, I really like the movie, but I think it's probably the best he's been on, uh, on screen so far. It, it was, <laughs> there's like that Twitter handle, uh, Christian Brune's bum. <laughs> I am not familiar with this. <laughs> okay, so fair, he, Christian has, he likes, like the, you know, okay, when I traveled in Australia, my nickname, everybody has a nickname when you're in Australia, and I was in my mid-20s. My nickname was PG Boy, like PG-13, because I was there to meet somebody and fall in love. Everybody else is there to party and hook uh, up and don't worry about it. Okay. <laughs> and so, you know, Christian, I was like, oh, I guess there's one scene where you gotta, you know, you gotta make out a little. And, uh, you know, he's like, oh, no problem. I'm naked in all my movies kind of thing. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <yeah. laughs> it, it was really fun to work uh, on a film where he was doing something, you know, he was reminding me, like, this is my first time I'm doing a feature film where I'm the lead. And he is, a lot of the cast were saying this too. He he was great. You know, like when it's a low budget film, you know, where I'm, I'm doing a lot of camera work and, and, you know, DP stuff as well as shooting. And it's just, it's, it's crazy as, as anybody who's made super low budget films knows mm. that the lead actor who's in every scene kind of becomes your director surrogate, you know, like how they are with everybody on set kind of is, it dictates how the other actors are going to feel comfortable. Of course, before they come on set, you say, hi, blah, blah, blah. But then I'm just consumed with camera crap. Sure, um, sure. And he, he was the conduit. He was the one that they were really with. And uh, it was phenomenal. I, I cannot thank him enough. So not only did he have a, give a great performance, he also allowed the space for all the other actors to have a great performance with him. He was just great. Oh, that's so good to hear. Uh, and I, I'm trying to think. I've basically had the entire cast on the podcast already. Christian's done two. Uh, Megan did one and brought up Red Rubber. We actually talked about it for a bit in her episode. Uh, Anna Hopkins is in there and Kara G as well. So I think I've covered almost everybody. So this may be the, like there's this and how to plan an orgy in a small town where I've, I've had almost everyone involved come through the podcast at some point or another. So this, this actually is good. So we've completed another step and we can, we can move forward. <laughs> uh, great. Yeah, and this this is good. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a decent or perfect doubt. It's, I'm just I'm usually have eye contact with somebody when this happens, so it's just weird for me. But in the end, we've actually had to switch to me on audio only. So you're having the Theodore Twombly conversation version of this podcast. <laughs> exactly. It's so weird. I hope it wasn't weird. <laughs> no, not at all. My thanks to Shane Belcourt, whose new film Red Rover is available on digital platforms and on demand today in the U.S. and Canada. Thanks also to Maria Novak. She knows what she did. 
You can find Shane on Twitter at Sab72, S-A-B-7-2, and you can find her on Blu-ray and DVD from Warner Home Entertainment. It's also available on iTunes and Google Play, and streaming on Netflix in the U.S. as well. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where in addition to my film duties, I'm hosting the podcast Now What?, where I interview Torontonians about our weird new normal of self-isolation in COVID-19. You can find that Tuesdays and Fridays in your podcatcher of choice, and you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it, or the show in general, say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network. Jordan Heath-Rawlings' The Big Story continues to be essential listening every weekday in this slow-motion crisis, and it's really helping me. Stay inside, watch movies. I'll see you next week.